This is episode number 679 with George Matthew, Managing Director at Insight Partners. Today's episode is brought to you by Posit, the open source data science company, by AWS Cloud Computing Services, and by Anaconda, the world's most popular Python distribution. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today I'm joined by the illustrious AI investor, George Matthew. George is Managing Director at Insight Partners, an enormous New York-based venture capital and growth equity firm with $100 billion in assets under management that is invested in the likes of Twitter, Shopify, and Monday.com. George specializes in investing in AI, machine learning, and data scale-ups, such as the gigantic enterprise database company Databricks, the extremely fast-growing generative AI company Jasper, and the popular MLOps platform Weights and Biases. Prior to becoming an investor, George was a deep operator at fast-growing companies such as Salesforce, SAP, the analytics automation platform Alteryx, where he was president and COO, and the drone-based aerial intelligence platform Kespri, where he was CEO and chairman. Today's episode will appeal to technical and non-technical listeners alike, anyone who'd like to be brought up to speed on the current state of the data and machine learning landscape by a razor-sharp expert on the topic. In this episode, George details how sensational generative AI models like GPT-4 are bringing about a deluge of opportunity for domain-specific tools and platforms. He then talks about the four layers of the generative AI stack that supports this enormous deluge of new applications. He talks about how RLHF, Reinforcement Learning from Human Feedback, provides an opportunity for you to build your own powerful and defensible models with your proprietary data. He talks about the new LLM Ops field that has emerged to support the suddenly ubiquitous large language models, including generative models. He talks about how investment criteria differ depending on whether the prospect of investment is seed stage, venture capital stage, or growth stage. And he talks about the flywheel that enables the best software companies to scale extremely rapidly. All right, you ready for this captivating episode? Let's go. George, John, <laughs> welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Thank you for coming in person to record with me in New York. Insight Partners is based in New York. You recently moved back to New York. You grew up here. It's nice to have you around. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy Friday. It's a beautiful day in our nice. neighborhood. Yeah. And looking forward to having this conversation with you on all things data science. Yeah, our listeners could be on any day of the week. Uh, and this episode comes out on Tuesday, but we are indeed recording on a Friday. And it's a beautiful day in New York. I'm sure you're itching to get out into the sunshine. <laughs> Only after we spend some good time together talking about all things fun and data science today. Nice, yeah. And so we've known each other for about a year. Right. Um, I did. Uh, I hosted a talk at the Scale Up AI conference last year with Clem DeLong. Yeah, thank you for that. Hugging Face, yeah, it was my pleasure. And so that actually is a super data science episode um, that people can check out. It's episode number 564. and. Yeah, the CEO of Hugging Face, lots of people talking about Hugging Face these, these days. Uh, if you're building large-scale language models, you're almost certainly using Hugging Face. It'd be hard not to be. 
Um, so that is a great episode. And the Scale Up AI conference itself, that was the inaugural one, right, last year? That's right. It was the inaugural one out of New York. It's amazing to see how much more innovation is happening in New York around all things related to data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Clem himself is based here with Hugging Face. It just tells a tremendous story of what the innovation ecosystem, particularly around data and AI, is in New York even today. For sure. It isn't all West Coast anymore. It certainly isn't. You spent a long time there. 15 so, years. Yeah. 15 years. Yes. So it, it goes to show that if somebody of your stature uh, can see value in being here in New York, uh, it makes me feel more confident about being here uh, in the AI scene myself. We're all having fun together right now. So. Um, so you are here as a managing director at Insight Partners. It's a venture capital and growth equity firm that is behind household names like HelloFresh, Twitter, um, Spotify is another big one, Monday.com. And, and more recently, you've been investing large amounts in prominent AI and data analytics startups like Weights and Biases, Jasper, and Databricks. There's countless more. <laughs> I wish I could reel them all off. When uh, I announced last week that we'd be a guest on the show, I spent an hour or two drafting this very long uh, LinkedIn post, trying to make sure that I was comprehensive about all of the data and AI investments that you've made. And there's at least a dozen. And the couple that I missed called me out. I couldn't help notice <laughs> that a few founders saw the post and they yeah, mentioned, exactly. what about us? But that's, that's a good sign. It means that there's just a, a tremendous amount of activity, particularly in the data and AI space. And everyone's doing some incredible work. And we're just happy to be part of that journey. Yeah, and they, uh, we also got some great questions from audience members, which we'll get to at the end of the episode once we get through mine. And of course, Serge Massis, as often, uh, is behind all the best questions that we'll be asked today. Great. Uh, so thank you, Serge, for those. Um, so uh, for people who don't know, how would you describe venture capital and its role in the technology startup ecosystem? Yeah, so I look at venture from, and venture capital in particular, from the lens of where it originally started. And the lens that it originally started was a view that incredible founders and entrepreneurs eventually go and give back to the experiences that they went through in the journey of building a business and scaling it out and coming back and investing into you know, the next generation of founders and leaders. And for me, that was almost the purest and the highest form of venture capital in a lot of ways. And it was one that I really subscribed to in being a more recent venture capitalist. Most of my career was an operator, a builder, just been in software for my entirety of my working career. Mm -hmm. And as I thought about where I would want to go in this sort of next phase of my own journey, what became very clear was that the data and AI space was just continuing to multiply in the scale of opportunities of incredible founders doing insanely amazing things. And instead of trying to pick one next thing that I could go do, certainly after the experiences at Altrix and Caspery, I was like, well, maybe I can help a few founders in their respective journeys. And I actually had a lot of conversations with those founders before going into venture capital. And it was the confluence of those conversations with some of the key discussions that I've had with venture capitalists across East Coast and West Coast, and of course my relationship with Insight, founder of the firm, just being involved with our Series B at Altrix and beyond. It just gave me a perspective that this was a moment that there was an opportunity to 
see this next generation of data and analytics companies originally, and then of course the sort of focus and sharpening on artificial intelligence and machine learning that emerged, particularly in this last half a decade, mm-hmm. has a lot more legs remaining to it, John. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm here to really serve the market, the founders, and the opportunity. No doubt you are preaching to the choir here, and probably with a lot of our listeners as well. Um, it, and it's interesting how now, even in the mainstream, it's crystal clear how much opportunity there is with AI, uh, people being blown away. This, the, you know, we talk about it probably too much on the show, but uh, and too much in the world. Yeah. But this ChatGPT moment yeah. and how it just showed people that there are mind-blowing things possible. That you know, I think people had kind of gotten used to. Oh well, you know, phones are getting a little bit faster. We get more pixels in a screen. But like, where is like this tremendous innovation, this world-changing innovation? And with something like ChatGPT, you see, bang, there's this potential to make a huge impact across every industry and improve human life um, uh, around the world. It's really exciting. Yeah, it, it is incredibly exciting. And the closest thing that I can analogize it to was when I graduated from college in the mid-90s. Um, I was actually working in my undergrad days on computational sciences and specifically in the applied use of computational sciences back into biological systems and particularly neurobiosystems. Mm-hmm. And most of that was, was research work as well as uh, my summer job was working on help desk. And I still remember back in 1994, I saw the NCSA Mosaic browser and my, my heart skipped a beat. And I, and I actually called my mom, I remember this even back then, and said, mom, I'm not gonna become a doctor. I'm going to go figure out what that is. Well, that moment, even almost 30 years ago, I can now sort of see it and play it forward to this moment. After the internet, after mobile, after cloud, now we're seeing this tremendous wave of innovation that's cresting as we speak. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to talk to my mom about it and said, mom, we're back here again. <laughs> and she just laughed. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's, it's that realization that our, our mothers and our fathers and our grandfathers and our grandmothers can understand the applicable use of AI at scale, John, that we've never seen in our own respective careers as professionals in this space. And so it is for sure a moment that we should all seize upon and embrace and really sort of run to in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's wild. And it's funny that you mentioned that because this most recent weekend, I was back home in Canada with my mother and my grandmother, and I got on my laptop and I was like, you just got to see this. And they were really blown away. And like some of the things like, I'd give a little bit of context on like, this is kind of what my mom's like, write a sentence where every word in the sentence starts with the next letter of the alphabet from A to Z. Nice. And it's like a crazy, like, and it did a really good job. Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, it kind of goes back to the key principles of software at scale, right? When you think about any emergent experience in software, you have to couple an incredible user experience, a UX with workflow, with something that's very uniquely defined mm-hmm. in the data and, of course, the model. And in this case, you're seeing that converge in 
a tremendous way that we haven't necessarily seen at consumer scale. I mean, look at the numbers, right, of mm-hmm. just active users on a product like ChatGPT, mm-hmm. and of course all the derivatives that emerge. Mm-hmm. It just kind of gives you a sense that this is um, not only something that is profoundly important for the moment in time that it came to market, but also has a incredible sort of resonance in this space for years, perhaps even decades to come. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Posit, the open source data science company. Posit makes the best tools for data scientists who love open source, period, no matter which language they prefer. Posit's popular RStudio IDE and enterprise products like Posit Workbench, Connect, and Package Manager, these all help individuals, teams, and organizations scale R and Python development easily and securely. Produce higher quality analysis faster with great data science tools. Visit posit.co, that's P-O-S-I-T.co, to learn more. And yeah, and so let's dig into this specifically with a portfolio company that you recently invested in, Jasper. So Jasper AI um, is this also extremely fast-growing consumer application of generative AI. And uh, so tell us more about it, and specifically if you could tell us more about how RLHF, reinforcement learning from human feedback, allows these consumer products, these user interfaces, to be so intuitive and useful to users. Yeah, so just a little bit of background on Jasper as a product, as a company. So when you look at the founding team of Jasper and the CEO, Dave, was very focused on this idea that a content marketer should have better tools in their hands. And that was the first and foremost problem to solve. Notice I didn't mention anything about AI yet, right? (laughs) It was the idea that a content marketer should have better tools to be able to do their work, better tools to be able to publish that blog, to be able to write just highly optimized SEO content. And it turns out as Jasper continued their journey, what they realized was that when you introduce a generative model, in this case, they use OpenAI's Um, at that point, GPT-3, and then subsequently now expanded the capabilities beyond just OpenAI. But when you use the generative model and you introduce that model alongside of the workflow in UX that was really targeted and tailored to the content writer, you can 10x that experience. And when you mention the idea of a consumer product, it actually turns out it's a special kind of consumer product. It's a prosumer product. And why I say that is that just like you and I would pay for, say, for instance, our own cell phones, regardless of whether our companies would pay for it, the same thing happened with the content writers that were using Jasper. They didn't even want their companies to pay for it. This was just a natural extension of how they live and work. And so this is what I sense is like a prosumer product that sits in between a lot of enterprises. Prosumer. So that's like the idea of professional consumer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A professional consumer that has tools that they would need to use on a day in, day out basis. And how do you really encourage the use of those tools? It was something that I was actually quite familiar with in the last generation of data analytics companies, because if you think about where the dominance of Tableau and Alteryx in particular went in the call it prosumer market of data analysts and data scientists, turns out this became essential tooling for them, right? In a similar way, I almost view there's opportunities for every persona that surrounds 
a enterprise as well as a prosumer experience have software that's very targeted. In this case, I almost noticed as we started to you know, work with the Jasper team and just understand the use cases and how they sort of solve for the productivity of the, the, the content writer themselves, it was like a mech suit, John. It was like a 10x mech suit of how they can get their work done. Mm-hmm. And when you can do those 10x moments, right, in terms of how people work, that changes you know, the way software is consumed. And in this case, Jasper became one of the fastest growing software companies in the history of SaaS. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, can you give us some of the hard numbers? Um, well, it's still privately held, right, so, right. so I can't give the hard numbers, but I will say that it's uh, near uh, triple digit millions in terms of where the scale of their recurring revenue is. And uh, the opportunity for Jasper coming into market is a little less than two years old. Right. So in two years, <laughs> approaching nine-figure ARR, that is, yeah, that's really, really, really wild. Um, giving OpenAI a run for their money. Um, yeah, and, and interestingly, it was a company that, at least initially, started as one of the first use cases of applied generative AI on top of OpenAI's LM, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's, of course, sort of expanded some of the capability of where it sources some of the large language models. but it certainly tells you a lot about what the opportunity looks like, not only for the build out of the foundation model, but the application layers that are on top of it. Mm-hmm. And then the going back to this RLHF idea, which we haven't really explained to listeners, but um, by having this application now running for two years, Jasper can gather feedback from users and they can fine tune their models to be better for this particular use case for content marketing. Yeah, it's, it's, this is an area, reinforcement learning with a human feedback loop, John, that I've been looking at quite a bit in just about any business that started in the generative AI space and probably likely any business that'll come on a go forward basis. And the reason is, if you look at where Jasper really progressed, it was the fact that it used the open AI model and to your point, as the content was being written, the quality of the content that was being generated, the iteration of that content and how it was being used, that was the feedback loop to be able to improve model performance over time. And so that reinforcement learning in this case with a human feedback loop was quite important for Jasper in this case to continue to improve the user experience and the attractiveness of how a content writer would work on a day in day out basis. If we even just zoom out from beyond Jasper itself and we look at like what happened with uh, their introduction of GPT-4 into market, well, it turns out, as some of us now well know, the output that came out of ChatGPT, aka GPT-3.5, those were the precise outputs that tune the model performance from exactly that moment of getting a strong RLHF signal back in to the delivery of GPT-4. So what I look at now is does that feedback loop exist alongside of access to some source of private data that can be uniquely differentiated. And so as an investor, as a builder who thinks about this space quite deeply, I don't think it's possible to have long-term sustainable advantages in any software domain without having 
that private data with some reinforcement feedback loop. And it might be fully human, it might be machine driven, or it might be a combination of human and machine driven feedback mm -hmm, loops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it creates what investors often call a defensible moat. Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a it's a little bit of an overused term in the <laughs> investor community. What is your moat, right? But yeah. in this case, um, it's very very difficult for you to build a sustainable business inside of a generative AI context. And if we imagine that generative AI has an impact on all of software, it really means like a sustainable business inside of all of software without having some understanding of what your private data is mm -hmm. and the reinforcement learning surrounding that private data. Mm -hmm. I think particularly with how quickly these AI innovations move, if you don't have some data strategy like you're describing that allows you to have this um, proprietary capability that other people can have, you're at risk of being gobbled up by something like, you know, GPT-5 could come along uh, in the future and have these kind of generalized capabilities that eat into your specific niche. It's a, it's a fascinating point that you just made, right? Because if we think about anyone who is built on top of GPT-3 and the GPT-3 style of models of its timeframe, they you know, were able to build some pretty interesting businesses um, as we indicated some examples. Well, it turns out when 3.5 and certainly 4 emerge, it's almost like you have to throw that out and right. rebuild on top of four. And right. why is that? Because the generalized model is, in the case of this next generation of four, is better than any domain-specified right. model that was built in three. Right. And to your point, it is likely going to play out again in the emergence of the GPT-5 style of models, which, you know, it's not just OpenAI, but others that are working on it, Anthropico mm -hmm. here and others mm -hmm. that are working on it, uh, their respective models. Those will likely be fundamentally better as generalized models than what's coming in the current finely tuned domain of you know, what will emerge with GPT-4 style models today. So I think that part of this experience of being a founder in this space right now is you have to be willing to change and almost sort of remove all of the preconceived notions of what worked and reimagine yourself again um, in this next iteration. Yeah. Some of this will slow down. Some of this will, the innovation will start to slow. One of the things that I've talked about in the past is where is this innovation gonna slow a little bit more? Well, it turns out that in every iteration of these large language models that are you know, now tokenizing a fair degree of data and now you know, building, say for instance, a trillion parameter large, large language model, as you get to call it the next exponential scale, somewhere between 10 to 25 trillion parameters in a large language model, you're actually running out of um, what we think of as human knowledge, the human corpus of publicly available data. So over time, you're still gonna have to rely on private sources of data, the reinforcement learning on a superpower model that mm -hmm. comes off the shelf from you know, somewhere in the range of you know, right now, a trillion parameters and certainly moving to an order of magnitude greater. And that, in a lot of ways, I think is tremendously exciting for human civilization. Yeah. Right? Because we have this moment here where this model that has emerged with, with particularly GPT-4 has the sum of a fair amount of our own knowledge encapsulated into it. Mm -hmm. And it's a co-pilot to our lives. 
and it's only getting better. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Um, and just thinking about ways that people can be, so you're talking about how founders, like a company of Jasper, needs to be really aware of how these big AI models, the next generation, like you're saying, Anthropic, Cohere, OpenAI, the, the GPT-5 generation of models that comes forward, how they could be able to eat into specific niches like Jasper has um, with uh, content marketing. Um, I know that something that's important to you when you think about your investment decisions is the user interface. So it isn't just about the models in the back end, it's also about creating a user interface, a user experience that is outstanding. And so that means that you know somebody that probably buys you a bit of time to figure out how to catch up with the models on the back end, because somebody say who's using Jasper for content marketing, they're going to they probably love the experience of doing that so much that when GPT five comes out, they're not like oh I should think about redoing like just leaving Jasper and trying to do this with GPT five because they, there's so much value add just in the experience that they have of Jasper. That's right, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned that even as models continue to evolve, and they will continue to evolve, there's still bringing that model together with the private data surrounding the reinforcement learning that'll improve the model over time and workflow and UX that supports the user experience in terms of how sticky they are to your product, right? Because the models are pretty solid even today. And as you start to see this evolution of you know, improvements in models, which will certainly drive a lot of um, competition in the space, I'm also seeing you know, the fact that like, the stickiness of like, users you know, continuing to work with a product, it's about the awareness, it's about the user experience, it's about the compelling workflow that plugs into the rest of their lives. And those things are as important as you know, the model fidelity improving over time. It's not like you can kind of choose one over the other. Like you still have to have fundamentally great user experiences around software. It just so happens now you're doing it in a world where model evolution is at the sort of frenetic pace we're, we're in right now. Yeah, fascinating, George. Great to be able to dig into your mind and hear about uh, the key things to look for in uh, creating an AI company or investing in an AI company. What kinds of startups are you particularly focused on? I mentioned that it's data and AI, but maybe you can break that down for us a bit. Yeah, let me unpack that because we spent a lot of time on what a generative AI application and what it takes to build some level of competitive scale in a generative AI application looks like. But part of this is really understanding what the rest of the hyperstacks below them are, right? In a lot of ways, the generative AI application is the top layer of this hyperstack that I think about. But right below there, there's a layer known as machine learning ops, and to a certain degree, some of the emergence of now LLM ops. The idea there is that you have a tool chain that is helpful for responsibly building models at scale. And whether that be taking first party, third party data and blending it together, whether that be doing the appropriate level of data labeling, whether that be feature engineering, bringing, in this case, um, experiment tracking, hyperparameter tuning, sweeps, and version controls, which is, of course, the investment that we made in weights and biases. And then, of course, the model production and observability surrounding it in certain areas that we've also made investments in, like Fiddler, for instance, for model observability and mm -hmm. decimation of models in the investment that we made in DESI. 
that MLOps layer has been built out for easily the last two to three years, mostly coming from the movement of DevOps now saying, how do you focus that, that idea for model production and model scale? That hyperstack is, of course, built on top of just everything related to the modern data stack, right? Just how did you organize the data? How did you get it all together in terms of data management, in terms of orchestration? How do you get reverse ETL back to like source systems? How do you ingest data from a ETL versus ELT standpoint into your modern cloud native data warehouse? And of course, the beneficiaries of that have been happening easily for a good part of a decade. So I view this in a lot of ways for most organizations as not just like, how do I jump to the forefront of generative AI? It's how did I build a very well-tuned set of hyperstacks that enable me to deliver the applications on top of the machine learning tool chain that is layered on top of the data lifecycle. And the best companies in the world have thought through their data lifecycle and their machine learning model building capabilities before they go into jumping around and delivering a generative AI application at scale. This episode of Super Data Science is brought to you by AWS Trainium and Inferentia, the ideal accelerators for generative AI. AWS Trainium and Inferentia chips are purpose-built by AWS to train and deploy large-scale models. Whether you are building with large language models or latent diffusion models, you no longer have to choose between optimizing performance or lowering costs. Learn more about how you can save up to 50% on training costs and up to 40% on inference costs with these high-performance accelerators. We have all the links for getting started right away in the show notes. Awesome. Now back to our show. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Um, Chip Huyen, who was a guest on our show not that long ago, um, she has written a great blog post at the time of recording. It had just come out. Um, so Chip was in episode number 661, and she is an absolute luminary on MLOps. And she wrote a big post on the specific needs associated with this term that I hadn't heard before until just a minute ago when you mentioned it, but it makes perfect sense to me, LLM ops. When we, so just like following on from what you just said there, when we think about deploying these generative AI models, they are so massive that even the smallest ones, and at the time of us recording, at least there's these models like Dolly 2.0, Alpaca, Vicuña, GPT for all, um, and the Llama architecture that a lot of those are based off of. Um, uh, those models can be as small as 10 billion, 15 billion mm -hmm. parameters, which means that we can fit them on one big GPU. <laughs> uh, so not like on your laptop, um, but on a server running a relatively large GPU, you can fit the model. Um, and so, but even at that level of complexity, once you're thinking about, okay, I wanna have a consumer application that's using one of these relatively small LLMs, mm -hmm. it needs to be able to scale. You need to be able to have as many services you need for however many consumers you have on using your generative AI application. So the infrastructure needs to scale up. And because of the scale of it, um, there's complexities that most data scientists, most machine learning engineers, most software teams haven't had to deal with before. Yeah, it's actually an area that I'm as excited by than just the build out of the multi-trillion parameter large language model, which is, as you called it, 
like how do you create small form factor LLMs and how do you create small form factor transformer models, right? Because uh, it was even before the emergence of like small form factor LLMs, we started to see where a latent diffusion model, like what Stability did, was able to now introduce the things that Dolly 2 would have done on big scale cloud infrastructure, you can now run on a MacBook Pro with an M1 chip and a sufficient amount of memory to be able to generatively design and create incredible output from an imagery standpoint. And of course, then some of the layering, of course, happened with video with what Runway was, for instance, doing. And so that actually taught us a little bit more about what we can do to have finely compacted models. And part of the compaction of those models is how do you tune it? How do you prune it? How do you look at the latent space of these models and understand where there are areas where you can fill in the gaps when it comes to hallucination by properly retraining the model? Certainly that's something exciting that we saw with you know, what the folks at uh, GPT-4All were doing this, this more uh, recent sort of weeks even. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I get really excited by that um, work that's happening in, in the small form factor models is the deployability of those models, John, can be so ubiquitous, right? Because of course they can show up on your laptop, of course they can show up on your Raspberry Pi, of course they can show up on your IoT devices, of course they can show up in places where you don't have all this massive scale of compute for the inference. And I think in a lot of ways, that is as important of an area of innovation and market opportunity to build the small form factor models that'll show up everywhere that software is deployed than just the cloud scale infrastructure where large scale inference is now being provided and massive gobs of GPUs are being chewed up by mm -hmm. you know, the providers of these LMs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is certainly an exciting space. Um, so uh, if people want to dig more into your idea of this data stack and this hyper stack, we will provide in the show notes an article that you co-authored called The Next Stack, Generative AI from an Investor Perspective. So um, I guess you've just started to touch on this kind of on the generative AI stack. I don't know if you can like talk us through layers? Yeah, sure. So when you look at the top of that hyper stack, we, we spent a fair amount of time just unpacking how we thought through every element of what it would take to be able to build a generative AI capability, right? And so we, of course, spent a lot of time really understanding what these foundation models were, and that's part of layer one, right? Really just be able to provide the perception around images, video, acoustic waveforms, like all the multimodalities that are going to and continue to emerge, particularly when it comes to the transformer-based architecture and specifically around not only LMs, but also latent diffusion models and other areas where we're seeing more than just uh, the application of transformers back into text. And so that's for us the layer one as we think about from a foundation model standpoint. Mm -hmm. The layer two is where I spent a fair amount of time in this discussion, what we believe is the need to deliver a domain-specific set of models for an industry, for a vertical, for a horizontal. One of the favorite examples of a domain-specific model that just emerged, I want to say two and a half, three weeks ago, 
was the Bloomberg. Bloomberg GPT. GPT. Yeah. Right. Fascinating, right? That like Bloomberg has all of this incredible financial reporting data. And now they've trained a model at scale to be able to deliver that into a deep summarization, deep articulation, deep generation capability set um, off of their own domain-specific model. We're going to see a lot more of those. Um, we're going to see that for all kinds of use cases. There's no reason why a U.S. torts law model wouldn't emerge. Right. Right. There isn't a reason why a uh, global tax law, you know, model would emerge. I think there's a lot of discussion about sort of regulation, particularly around these models. I'm actually very excited to see some of the regulation because honestly, I believe there's a moment where some of these regulated industries can have very finely tuned, focused domain-specific models that are regulated for the needs of that industry, like healthcare or financial services. So that's layer two. Mm -hmm. Layer three is the tools themselves, right? And we talked a lot about the tools that are emerging. Most of them are predominantly defined by the machine learning operations tools, the MLOps tools. Some of those tools are now being targeted and focused on LMOps. And layer four is the, the delivery of those applications, the, the Jaspers, the Hour Ones, the Deep Dubs. These are applied, full functioning applications that are being delivered. So my partners and I, Lonnie Jaffe, mm -hmm. Ganesh Bell, Nikhil Sachadev, and some of our, our team members and associates, Jenna Zerker and Sunny Singh, put together a, um, a view of where this uh, next stack will go. And that's, um, of course, what you referred to. And anything you want to dig in into that conversation, we're happy to have that here as well as, um, as, well as online for anyone who's interested in really just digging in with us. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to just generally kind of think how, how this generative AI stack, uh, how will it unlock new things? Like, what are you most excited about this, where is this going to go? Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we talked a lot about what, what has been applied up to this moment. Now let's, let's think about where the unlocks are going to occur that we haven't quite seen yet, right? And so whether Insight or another venture capital firm invests into these opportunities, we're, we're profoundly excited to see what's coming next. Imagine what computational generative architecture could look like, right? So if we're building a skyscraper now, instead of using a traditional CAD CAM piece of software, mm -hmm. we generally give an input to say, mm -hmm. build me a 35 floor skyscraper with 10 apartments that are 800 to 1200 square feet in size, mm -hmm. 10 exits on each floor that has a floor plate of 25,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. And we have the technology now to be able to do that mm -hmm. at scale. Another great example that I've more recently seen is if you look at the entirety of the code base that's been delivered across many enterprises today, there's actually a lot of sloppiness in terms of testing and scaffolding. Well, what if you can actually take a generative model and re-scaffold and create all the unit tests necessary mm -hmm. to invert what we understand in what's been compiled or declaratively written in the source code. And suddenly you have a much better test bed of 
testable code as you've now brought it to market. It certainly um, don't have to talk about where you know Copilot has gone already, right? I mean that that's certainly a use case today. Like you talk to any five ten x developer today, they'll talk about the the exponential amount of productivity that they're getting in their own in their own work lives. So I keep looking at these opportunities, and I see more things to to do, more things to create, more things to revolutionize, and that's what keeps me. Um, you know, glued to the seat of my, you know, the seat of this, this sort of innovation that's happening and excited by it because it's the next generation of founders and entrepreneurs that are doing this. It actually turns out it's also a fair number of incumbents. That's like the thing that's, that I've seen that's more exciting than any other wave mm-hmm. of innovation before. Mm-hmm. Like every other wave of innovation before was, was, was up to the, the big tech firms. Well, it was it was up to you know uh, innovators to come in, smaller folks, and sort of get the the ball moving. Right? right here, you're absolutely right. It's the big tech firms can simultaneously innovate. The the incumbents can simultaneously innovate just as much as as the startups can. So it's um it's a moment where I I, I really think it comes down to what are these key personas in software. Can you build a UX, a workflow, a private data set, and a very finely tuned generative model around that private data set mm-hmm. to own the persona? Mm-hmm. Like I almost feel like it's a market where a thousand personas will have a thousand different right. related right. interplaying stacks, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to, to the LLM layer and the private data layer. Yeah, there's a huge amount of opportunity, an unprecedented amount of opportunity, uh, you know, for people <laughs> who are listening who haven't been in data science for a while. You're getting into it at the, at the right time, and for people like me and probably like you who have been in this space for a while, this is is so exciting because, like you say, it's like okay, let's find a niche, let's find a problem. Like you said, like going back to the Jasper thing, we're kind of using them as our like general example to keep returning to, but it's a great one to say content marketers should have better tools. And then we say, okay, well, how can we do that? And so you can do that for, as you say, a thousand different niches, maybe more. Um, and you know, there might be market-specific things like, okay, you know, this content marketing tool works really well um, in Western markets or something. But you're like, we're going to need something really specific for Indonesia. Yep. Um, and so there's yeah, a, a tremendous amount of opportunities. Really exciting. Let, let me give you another example of uh, what a continuous journey looks like in in a software market. So. You probably have heard a lot about where BPO, business process outsourcing, was for many, many years. And then you saw the introduction of robotic process automation, RPA solutions, right? Whether that be Blue Prism or UiPath or Automation Anywhere. What we're seeing now is some of those incumbents, but also some incredible upstarts start to build almost a more intelligent process automation layer. Like so some inside companies like Bardeen or Workado, what they're enabling us to now do is instead of hard coding all of the, the declarative logic, instead of hard coding the rules surrounding this, instead mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. finding all of the, the, the nooks and crannies of where you put fuzzy logic into your software, well, guess what? Replace that with a generative model yep. that you can continuously train. Mm-hmm. So that, that I find you know, incredibly exciting when even in, massively well understood existing software categories 
are now going to be reimagined again, mm-hmm. uh, even by both the incumbent and the upstarts. Did you know that Anaconda is the world's most popular platform for developing and deploying secure Python solutions faster? Anaconda solutions enable practitioners and institutions around the world to securely harness the power of open source. And their cloud platform is a place where you can learn and share within the Python community. Master your Python skills with on-demand courses, cloud-hosted notebooks, webinars, and so much more. See why over 35 million users trust Anaconda by heading to superdatascience.com anaconda. You'll find the page pre-populated with our special code SDS, so you'll get your first 30 days free. Yep, that's 30 days of free Python training at superdatascience.com anaconda. Yeah, and something that we talked about before recording, another place where models like particularly GPT-4 has absolutely blown my mind is with labeling data. So previously, I would think of, or a data scientist on my team would think of an amazing model, but we're like, man, it's going to be hard to make those labels. Like even if we think about, okay, yeah, like we can farm out the creation of those labels, but we're not confident that they're going to do a great job. It's it's a complex task that we're asking here. And (laughs) um, without going into the details of some of these use cases at, at our company, um, I when GPT-4 came out, the same prompt that I tried so hard to get GPT-3.5 to do, with GPT-4, I remember just throwing in something where I was like, this is too vague, like I was in a meeting, mm. and so I was like, I don't want to really get this prompt right, I'm just going to quickly throw something at it. Let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, I'm probably not defining the problem well yeah. enough. And it came back with exactly what I was looking for, perfectly executed. Brilliant. And so, yeah, that's another opportunity for our listeners is, if, there's you can create now tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of labels uh, in the amount of time that previously it might have taken you laboriously to create a hundred labels. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned this this idea of I talked about automation, you talked about labeling. It also kind of pushes the extension of how we think about um, continuously running models, right? And now there's a, an entire line of work that's happening. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, auto GPT or baby AGI, right? And what these models are really now doing is just constantly running and finding iteration on the objective function that they're going after. It's not quite certain how far we should let these go uh, <laughs> for, for the reasons yeah. uh, that we can, of course, get into at any moment. But at the same time, it just kind of gives us an idea of how much more sort of manual work can be reimagined and up-leveled mm-hmm. with the use of a generative model at scale. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really exciting. Um, so <laughs> we have so many topics to get through. Um, so um, we've talked now about all the kinds of opportunities. What are the challenges? What are the risks for people that want to get into generative AI companies? Yeah, we talked a little bit about regulation, but let me actually mention where I think as we build the scale of, of these generative opportunities in the market, we have to be really thoughtful around is what I think of as just the broader alignment challenge, right? right? And if you think about alignment today in the consumer world, you know, we saw a lot of public scary things, particularly with with, with GPT 3.5, right? I mean, there is a little sidebar inside of GPT 3.5 where if you iterate long enough in terms of the conversation that you're having, 
an alternate persona came out, and her name was Sydney, and she wanted to be let out of right. the model. Um, and of course, there's um, you know some controversy around that because once the number of sequential questions that were historically capable of being asked were limited, uh, there was commentary that the models were effectively being lobotomized in terms of their their own creativity. I don't have a particular stance on any of that yet, but what I do know is that hallucinations are probably very interesting in a creative sense of how you think about, say, for instance, image generation, or if you think about what you would want to do to extend um, the studio experience on video that you might be creating. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, my goodness, do you not want to have your medical journal right. uh, hallucinate? Right. right. Or uh, you want you have your legal output on an LLM hallucinate mm -hmm. or your your, uh, you know, LMs are being used for 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 therapeutic purposes. Mm -hmm. Right. Like those are areas where I think much more highly aligned, focused, um, almost um, large language models that have been taught to specifically do what they need to do and mm -hmm. ideally nothing else mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are, are best suited For sure. and and, and, I, and that's where that's where i think uh we have to spend a lot more time on responsible ai the regulations around what the models are allowed to do and deliver um, safe trustworthy ways that models can be deployed at scale mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh we're getting to this interesting point where because especially with the GPT-4 generation of LLMs, they are uh, markedly less prone to hallucinating. So the, the numbers from OpenAI themselves, there's, there's a 40% reduction in hallucinations, which in my experience is usually, has, it's felt like a lot more than 40%. And maybe that's even related to um, subsequent models, like they're constantly, you can see exactly which GPT-4 version you're using and it's being updated every couple of weeks. And so maybe it's something related to that. Because it feels to me like I'm I'm rarely getting nonsense, whereas I was frequently with GPT 3.5. And that, and that I would say is super exciting, right? Because even in the last eight weeks, right, we've gone from some scary side tangents in terms of what the hallucination of 3.5 was. But in a lot of ways, the as I get back to the notion of RLHF, the fact that the output and the inference kept really improving the model performance that was exactly what improved you know the emergence of gpt4 and the fact that you're absolutely right i mean it definitely hallucinates a lot less right a lot less i mean like we hear less noise about you know how four works today but so where i'm going with that is that the risk at least from a business or a consumer perspective is that when it was hallucinating frequently you were in the habit of making sure that everything was correct um, so there are legal firms, accounting firms that allow their employees to use these generative models. But of course, they're saying you must read over absolutely everything and sign off on uh, the, the veracity of it, the quality of it. But as these models become better, and maybe we're already, already at that point today, or maybe it'll happen soon, where, um, as, as you say, especially these niche-specific models. So you come up with the tort GPT, and some tort lawyer has gotten used to how this tort GPT instance, you know, for weeks, he hasn't seen a single hallucination. 
She hasn't seen a single hallucination in the model. So you become to really trust it, and then you become less diligent about making sure that everything in there is correct. But some proportion of things for the foreseeable future will still be hallucinated and incorrect. And so there's this interesting risk of as it gets really close to not making mistakes, you become lazy and you end up pushing out contracts or business deals that contain nonsense. I love this line of thinking. And <laughs> here's what I would say. If we go to school when we did a while ago for both of us, we always checked our own work, right? No matter where the sources were, how we put the, put the assignment together, we checked the final work as it went out. Uh, when we are in our you know, business setting, when we're releasing a product into market, when we are writing a document, we're still checking our work. We're proofreading. We're mm -hmm. thinking about what we've put together as we you know, submit it for whatever the downstream process might look like. And in a lot of ways, because you have a generative model perhaps help you get your work done faster, it doesn't mean you shouldn't check your work. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so I, I, I look at this as a similar opportunity to what calculators were able to do for us in the mm -hmm. classroom, mm -hmm. right? Like there are certain things that you just didn't have to do on a rote basis because exactly. the calculator did it for you. Exactly. And so here you have this calculator that's the most complex artifact created in human civilization that is helping you do the things that you do. Mm -hmm. And that's good. There's mm -hmm. something positively beneficial about that. But that doesn't mean the human in the loop, uh, the human that is responsible for the outcome and the result, shouldn't check their own work. Mm -hmm. In 1960, yeah. J.C.R. Lickletter said something very compelling, right? He actually talked about human-machine symbiosis, right? And it wasn't about this idea that like somehow the machines would replace us. It was always this idea that the symbiosis would be about humans and machines working together to create better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we're much closer to that than ever before, mm -hmm. but doesn't mean that the human is out of the loop. It doesn't mean that the human gets to like not be responsible for the work mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's produced. Yeah. So I'm a big proponent about making sure you check your own work. For sure, that's great tips for uh, a great tip for everyone. Make sure you continue to check the work of your generative AI models. And the point that you just made uh, highlights to me this thing that I'm I'm personally not extremely concerned about um, an AGI that has human-like intelligence in the coming years. What's fascinating is that the tools that we already have today, GPT-4, it on now the broadest range, in the same way that the calculator for decades, we now have these tools that on a broader range of tasks than ever can outperform humans at, uh, in terms of accuracy and of course in terms of speed and cost. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself should be, like it's, like I don't even, it seems almost silly to me to be trying to define AGI as pegged against whatever human intelligence is. Because we can unleash, we can create a much more powerful set of tools by it being different from us. Correct. Um, yeah. yeah. And we complement each other. And in that creation of those tools, you know, we talked a lot about the positive benefit to humanity in those tools. But let's be clear that those same tools can be used for many nefarious purposes. Certainly. And it's just a question of 
who uses those tools to what yeah. purpose. Yeah. That has happened with every technological innovation up to this moment, mm -hmm. including the last generation of non-generative AI models. And it will likely happen at a scale that we're not quite ready for yeah. from an adversarial perspective sure. as we boldly move into this generative world that we're entering. That doesn't mean that the technology can't create positive benefit for humanity. We just have to be self-aware of the things that it can also be used for nefarious adversarial purposes. For sure. Propaganda creation, viruses, yeah, in ways that uh, yeah, we're not prepared to defend against. And which, yeah, policy is always like so far behind. Um, but yeah, that's a, a conversation for another day. We have too many things that we that I'd love to talk about here. Um, so um, we talked about ML ops uh, maturing into LLM ops, and Insight Partners has itself invested in a lot of startups in the space. You mentioned some of them: Databricks, Desi, Fiddler. Um, so, um, what are the key elements of this ML ops um, uh, ecosystem? And um, you know, what are the what are the most yeah what are the most important elements that are driving best practices, effective implementation? Um, I've just asked a whole lot of questions. Sure, so you've got sure, yeah. <laughs> you've got a lot to work with. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a few areas that that I, that if you net it out, you really want to pay attention to. One is delivery of high quality data. I mean, paramount view of any model production, no matter if it's a predictive, statistical, algorithmic model, and then the algorithmic models, the ones that are going more into deep learning, whether that be supervised or unsupervised deep learning, and certainly going into this sort of world of transformer-based autoregressive models. In all of those cases, the quality of the data matters quite quite profoundly. And I view that as one of the first and important steps. And something that, that I actually had a chance to spend a fair amount of time with in my experience at Alteryx, because in a lot of ways, a tool that was meant to start with data prep enabled you to do many of the things that subsequently was involved with doing in those days self-service analytics. In this case, you know, the build out of these autoregressive models at scale, the transformer-based architecture that is, you know, so profoundly elegant to be able to do the work that we've all talked about, still requires a great substrate of data. So I look at that and make sure that there's good ways that data comes in and out, great ways that data orchestration occurs. So I happen to be an investor in uh, Astronomer, which is the, the purveyor of Airflow, um, really effectively used as a product for data orchestration at scale, um, ensuring that the output of these systems writes back into your operational capabilities, right? So this sort of some of the reverse ETL capabilities become quite compelling. And the tools themselves on the building of models, John, have to interoperate with each other. Like they can't necessarily be things that just silo themselves in little black boxes that do their thing. The beauty of this MLOps movement that's occurred, particularly in the last two to three years, is that they are highly functioning in not only doing their work, but also being in a tool chain that supports the work of things that are up and downstream from them. Mm -hmm. So when we looked at it from an investment standpoint, when we look at from you know who's building great modern capability around machine learning at scale, we do pay attention quite a bit to the openness of that tool chain. Nice. That was a great answer. I loved all these kind of specific uh, elements, data quality, data orchestration, reverse ETL, model interoperability. Um, 
I knew I felt like I was giving you a really vague question, and it's a, remarkable that you came back with such a concrete uh, and actionable answer. Um, so um, let's uh, move on to um, how you make investment decisions. So you've talked a number of times over this episode about investments that you've made. Um, so VCs, for example, often invest in founders first and foremost. So you know, is when you're evaluating who to invest in, what company to invest in, how much of it is the founding team? Is, is it the product? Is it how they fit into these ecosystems? You have your own particular investing niche. You have your, your own understanding of um, these layers and how the pieces fit together. So how do all these things come together when you're like, okay, this is the one, let's uh, put some money into this. All the above, but the weights matter. That's <laughs> right. how I think about that, right? And here's why I said that. If we start from a later investment cycle, like something that's more mature, you know, generating revenue, generating profitability at scale, well, in their case, those companies have great product market fit. They're continuing to bring additional sort of market opportunity and share to them. There's might be consolidation opportunities to be able to merge that with adjacencies. Mm. You're in a mature market that continues to grow that you find further opportunity to scale your business. It's an area that Insight has known very well in just our core growth equity investing for well over 25 plus years, going on 28 years that the firm started. And there continues to be great growth opportunities, period, in the market. When you look at the venture scale investments, the ones that are earlier, oftentimes you're thinking about a different set of weights in terms of focus, right? right? It's not that those areas that I mentioned don't matter, but you have to introduce the notion of product market fit. Do you understand the core value proposition that your product is built for, and is there a market to receive that value proposition and enable you to scale? If you have the proper product market fit, then you are very targeted and focused on getting repeatable scale in your go-to-market. And that could be an enterprise sales motion. It could be a bottoms-up product-led sales motion. It could be the combination of the two where you take a PLG starting point for landing customers and then you expand customers using an enterprise motion. That combination of product market fit versus your go-to-market matters quite dramatically. And investors who are a little bit earlier in the life cycle on investing look for that product market fit. And if you kind of move all the way back into the earliest stage of investing, which is seed, um, it's a very fascinating market because you certainly don't have product market fit. You mm -hmm. certainly don't have a code market. You have an idea and a really compelling idea. And you have the desire to run through brick walls to ensure that your mm -hmm. idea meets the market properly. And in those cases, John, you're looking at the team, right? You're looking at the founder, looking at the team. And the quality of that team's ability to run through brick walls every single day is really where the investment um, gets made. And so as you called out all those qualities in terms of what an investment looks like, I view that in a lot of ways as the, the weights and the biases, uh, no pun intended there, of <laughs> how you prioritize um, where you are in the life cycle of not only that business, but also the life cycle of the market and make your decision accordingly. So I tend to um, see more focus as, and we 
personally do as much seed investments um, ourselves, but when we see some of the best seed investors that come and bring their incredible founders to us, they've already hyper-selected for incredible teams. Got it. Right. And in the case of where we do a lot of our core work, um, we're looking at product market fit and can you get the go-to-market in place? And then as you look at like the growth stage and the later stage of companies' life cycles, you're looking at are there consolidation and scale opportunities that are mm-hmm, in place? Mm-hmm. And we love that sort of core center of venture and growth equity, which is where Insight continues to serve many founders in their respective journeys. Nice. You're an ideal podcast guest because what you did just at the very end there, you just summarized, you went back over what you'd said and summarized it. That's what I try to do. And you just took it away from me. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> no, it's ideal. I'll just uh, yeah. I'll just put up a chat GPT instance and you can talk. Perfect. Um, yeah. uh, but there was a specific abbreviation that you mentioned in there, which we hadn't talked about yet on the show. And I might never have talked about on any episode, actually, even though it is a really important core philosophy at our company, at my machine learning company, Nebula, is PLG. So that abbreviation stands for product-led growth. Correct. Do you want to tell us a bit more about yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, I think that software has really evolved, particularly in this last decade, where when you look at the beginning of the 2010 timeframe, you were still in a software market where enterprise salespeople had a bag, not physically, but but but, but metaphorically that a they vacuum. carried, <laughs> and there were products that they brought in that bag to a customer that they saw in person and asked that customer, how much would you like to buy of the things that are in my bag? Mm-hmm. And they're incredible enterprise software leaders that I've had a chance to work with over the years that did a tremendous job of delivering exactly what I just mentioned at scale to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars of, of software revenue in the businesses that I've been involved in. And particularly in the last 10 years, what we've started to see was not all software was bought that way. Mm-hmm. Not all software needed to even be consumed that way. Mm-hmm. Right? When you think about where developers need tools, when you think about where data scientists need tools, those opportunities aren't necessarily about a sales rep's coming to you with a bag of software and telling you that this is what you need. It's about the choice of being able to understand what are those opportunities that you're looking for a critical need to solve with a software set of tools that you're making that decision without any sort of additional purchase consideration from someone pushing software down your throat. Mm-hmm. And in that case, uh, what we started to see was this emergence of product-led growth companies, right? And so if you look at many product-led growth companies today, their predecessors a generation ago you know, were companies like Salesforce. Companies now like HubSpot, companies like Altrix and Tableau in the in the data space, where targeted personas were given an opportunity to trial software, have free experiences around the software, to touch and feel what the software experience could look like before any dollar transaction was made. And so PLG growth is all about how do you build that wellspring of community of loyal, incredible delighted champions that love and breathe and eat the software that you're delivering to mm-hmm. them in a way that they become the natural champions for growth in an organization. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, my experience of seeing a few generations of software more recently, particularly in the SaaS world, what I realized 
is that it's not like enterprise selling is a bad word and nor is it possible that you can just do PLG-based growth alone, unless you're Atlassian, which seems to have pulled that off. <laughs> Very few names other than Atlassian. There might be one or two more, Canva probably. But in most cases, you need a very strong flywheel for product-led growth to encourage new logos to come on board by the personas that are targeted for the software that you're delivering at mm-hmm. scale. And eventually, you still need a very strong enterprise leader from a sales perspective mm-hmm. to come in and consolidate all that demand into a big enterprise opportunity. Yeah. And so my view is that um, the best software companies over time have two flywheels. One that enables you to land customers and logos with a product-led growth and eventually expand customers with enterprise sales. Uh, that was a really great answer. And uh, maybe I can try to give like a bit of a concrete example to like illustrate this for our listeners. So. To go back to Jasper, um, so uh, you talked about prosumers using Jasper, loving it for their content marketing. So you can imagine a scenario, a a PLG scenario, uh, potentially, and tell me if I get parts of this wrong, but you could have um, people who um, work at some big corporation. There's several people there who do content marketing. One of them comes across a blog post about Jasper. They're like, oh, cool, I'm going to try this out. Click a button. Yeah, they yep. click it out. There's a free trial. They generate some content. They're like, wow, this is going, like I can now do in minutes what was taking me hours before. And so they tell their colleague and their colleague starts using it too. And then after a while, you have all these content marketers in this big corporation who are all using it as kind of independently. They've just created their own accounts. Maybe they're using free accounts or some, um, some account that's $20 a month or something to get some of the extra features. And then as part of your flywheel, an enterprise sales manager can see, oh, look, there's eight people at this big corporation all using a free version or a relatively inexpensive version of this. Um, We have all these extra features, security features, ways that all these different people could be working together as part of an enterprise. Um, And so now I'm going to pop in and see if if these features would be interesting. That's right. And when I said those two flywheels are interrelated to each other, the product analytics, right? The capabilities of just knowing where the instrumentation and usage of your champions and your day-to-day users brings back the insights that are necessary to understand where you can expand that market opportunity. And so some of the best software companies have great instrumentation and understanding of usage and behavior that eventually drives not only further adoption of the product on a daily active usage basis, but also drives the ability to sell enterprise licenses at scale. Super cool. Yeah, uh, certainly a, a philosophy that uh, we aspire to. And uh, yeah, you see a lot of companies doing really well with this uh, double flywheel approach. Yep. Again, critical that the, uh, that, the data, that the data are being tracked, platform analytics are being tracked. Um, but yeah, huge amount of opportunity. All right, so George, you've done an amazing job answering my questions here. I knew you would but it's been a real honor to learn from you. However, I'm not done with you yet because uh, you might remember from the very beginning, I mentioned that your very popular post about you showing up, uh, it attracted some great questions for you. So we're gonna dig into some of those now. Sounds good, John. Nice, so we have Evan Wimpy. He had two great questions. His first one was um, going back to um, the investment decision-making that you do. When 
the underlying technology is similar, what differentiates a good investment from a bad one? We, we, we've looked at this over time where you, know, you have similar companies, similar technologies, similar markets, like what differentiates over time. I would say very consistently it's been team and team execution. And when you look at that team execution, you know, some of it's like you know, the CEO founder themselves, but it's also just the, the leadership team surrounding it. Every leadership team that surrounds a great CEO that's in a market where there are legitimate competitors that can continue to win in the space, what I've generally found as someone who is an operator and now as an investor is the difference is the team and their, their capability to execute. And what I mean by execution, it's not just that you can move quickly and robustly into, into market, but you also iterate well. You learn and iterate. Sometimes the best teams when it comes to being competitive in a space are the ones that might make a mistake or two along the way, but they fail fast, they recognize their mistakes, they pick themselves up and they iterate quickly mm -hmm. and move. And in very, very competitive early stage markets, particularly as a software category is being defined, it's almost impossible to be a leader without a level of bias towards execution. Everyone has great ideas. We've, we've seen this, right? Where every market as it emerges has great ideas. Think about where the data prep space was, John, almost 10 years ago, right? That was a category that everyone didn't even understand was possible. And there were a number of, of folks that were in that market that were competing for the same attention. But the companies that executed well you know, became billion dollar businesses, right? The ones that um, didn't iterate, didn't learn, didn't, didn't move with a level of bias towards execution, uh, didn't necessarily come anywhere near that in terms of their outcomes. Nice, great answer, uh, crystal clear. And related to this investment idea, Evan's next question is when we have new emerging uh, areas like that or generative AI today, uh, I know this isn't your space, but certainly there's been a lot of hype around, say, crypto uh, in recent years, of course. And so when there's a lot of hype around some new capability, how do you stay level-headed as an investor? I think it's hard to stay level-headed as both an investor as well as a founder when you're in the midst of a deep hype cycle, specifically like this one, right? I mean, it's probably no bigger hype cycle we've seen in software for easily a good almost decade, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you do about that? Well, first and foremost, you really keep yourself grounded, targeted, and focused on where your value is in the market. And when I say what your value in the market is, does that product really meet the needs of a set of customers that you can repeatedly deliver over and over without having to look left and look right? Mm. And the ones that execute that incredibly well have a very sharp mind and focused mind, a deliberate mind in a lot of ways, towards that bias towards execution and seeing how the market um, may have a 
buzzy hype cycle surrounding it, but the reality is you still have to build a great company in the middle of all this. And if you look at the waves of hype prior, whether that be you know, the mobile computing wave, whether that be the big data wave, whether that be the cloud computing wave, whether that be now what we're seeing with the AI and generative AI wave today, the difference between the companies that were able to break out and the companies that weren't were really intentionally focused founders and leadership teams that whether it be very emotional highs in the market or very, very crushing lows. And we will go through a few of these cycles as well here, where as, as this is as, um, as indicated, the slope of enlightenment only comes out of the fact that you have a hype cycle that scales as significant as it's, but in between, there's a trough of disillusionment, right? Yeah. And so wait, we're nowhere near that trough of disillusionment, and particularly when it comes to everything related to generative AI. Um, but there will be moments here that founders, investors, entrepreneurs, leaders in the space will find even disillusionment in the middle of, of this next wave that's that's right in front of us. But what I look back at, you know, over the 25 plus year history that I've had as a builder and now an investor in the space, you transcend all of those hype cycles by delivering absolute and compelling value to a market. And as long as you have your true north there, you tend to, to let the, the hype cycle and the waves surrounding that wash over you to still find crystal blue ocean at the end of this experience. Nice. Very well said. Yeah. So um, to cut through hype, to remain uh, level-headed as an investor, um, you can invest in great companies that have product market fit and can continue to grow by delivering value even when the hype cools and there's this valley of disillusionment. Um, that's crystal clear. We've got just one last question for you here. It's from Arnold Slabicorn. I'm probably mispronouncing Arnold's last name. Uh, he's a senior director of analytics and data science, and he's curious on your viewpoint on how um, all these generative AI technologies, um, maybe AI technologies in general, but he specifically talks about LLMs um, and things like uh, AutoGPT, which you mentioned earlier. So um, at the time of recording, it was it's one of the highest trending projects in GitHub. And so he's wondering how these kinds of uh, tools are going to impact the labor market in the short term, so in the next couple of years, as well as beyond? So as I'm framing the answer to this question, I do want to reiterate that from a labor participation force and the productivity of humanity's output, we've never been more productive as a civilization, right? And when we look back at the last 30 plus years of why that has happened, it turns out it is technology and automation that has driven that level of productivity in, in society and, and human civilization. So this is clearly another moment where we're seeing a dislocation, all right? And that dislocation unquestionably is being driven by AI and automation. And so as we go through this dislocation, uh, there will be shifts in the labor force. And it's not that there 
isn't going to be incredible amounts of work for everyone to do over time. It's just what I view now is, you know, a great reskilling needs to also happen mm-hmm. through the midst of all this, mm-hmm. right? Because the things that humans were doing in their respective jobs prior may not exist any longer. Mm-hmm. And that's just because the reasoning, the inference, the ability for a generative model to be able to do things that a human could historically have only done is now possible with just the machine doing it itself. Mm-hmm. And I think you could kind of go back to what I mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is over time, it is about human machine symbiosis. And so in every dislocation that has happened up to this moment, you've had a reimagination of what that human machine symbiosis is. This is a profound one, one that will have a fair degree of impact on what we think of as blue collar work, um, white collar work, um, all work. At the end of the day, as we're going through that dislocation, one of the things that we have to just be very cognizant of is how do we ensure the reskilling of work at scale? And one of my um, incredible sort of passions about about all of this um, over you know my own career from this moment on is is how do we ensure that there's meaningful work for everyone? And it's something that we have to deeply and profoundly engage in as a society because if we don't provide meaningful work, um, even as this dislocation is occurring, there's problematic issues with you know the sort of core bedrock of 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 human civilization for sure and and that's where if we if we undertake the necessary steps to reskill ourselves in any job your job my job like like we have to do our jobs differently right it's like you know as uh as someone who is a builder of software um, as someone who's a data scientist, someone who's an investor, it doesn't matter if all of those jobs can now be augmented differently with, with the possibility of a, um, a, a very powerful enabling tool like a transformer and the use of a transformer for you know, the GPT cell models that have emerged. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that means like, just like all kinds of tools were introduced in our past in human civilization, we have to make the adjustments as humans for the introduction of these new tools. Part of that is investing back in ourselves. Part of that is re-education, reskilling, retraining, and re-enablement to properly work um, for this next decade and beyond. It will feel a little rough for a while. I have no doubt about it. Because in a lot of ways we haven't undertaken the rescaling of work. Yeah, uh, very well said. I agree with you on all those points, and I think an interesting uh, point to add is that in all of these automations that have happened historically, uh, unemployment has gone down, and it's interesting that in most Western countries, certainly I know in the U.S., we're at historic low unemployment at the same time that we have unprecedented levels of automation. And so it seems like these, uh, 
from uh, steam engines and uh, mechanization from you know ag from agricultural work where uh, 200 years ago 99% of people were involved in just making enough food to live yeah. and now only a few percent of people in a western country need to be concerned with creating food and now we have this reverse problem of for, for like more people are dying from too much food uh, you know in orders of magnitude more people are dying from having too much food and the diseases associated with that than of malnutrition and um, you know not having access to calories. That's going to be another podcast for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, all of these historical automation events have led to more opportunity, and the kind of work that people get as a result is typically more enjoyable. I would cert I certainly love that I can be making podcast episodes with you instead of toiling in the fields mm -hmm. for eighteen hours a day hoping that I have enough wheat for next winter to survive on. Um, and so I think that this shift will be like those, uh, where the, the more automatable parts of your job get automated or augmented, and you can focus more on the enjoyable parts of it. And one of the things that you mentioned, the, the type of work up to this point, well, there's a, a type of work that we've introduced into our society particularly in the last three to four decades, and it's computational work. And when we think about computational work today, when we interface with a machine prior, the level of interface was very low, right? The layer that we were interfacing was in assembly code, perhaps, right? And then we introduced this notion of a compiler, right? And then we introduced higher level programming languages effectively on top of compilers. And so what I think is where the computational work of our you know, great civilization is headed is that we're going to be in a moment where the most common programming languages in the world are likely going to be English and Chinese. Right. And that doesn't necessarily close off the fact that there isn't incredibly compelling things to do, to your point. It just means that the abstraction that we can now engage, the democratization and the scale of what we can now use our machines to help us create better outcomes for ourselves and the rest of society is more possible now and into the future than ever before. And that's what excites me a lot about this, this movement towards generative AI. Yeah, yeah, very cool vision, which leads me to my last technical kind of question for you, which is, You've been around for decades in the software industry, first as an operator, now as an investor. You've seen the tremendous change that you just outlined at a high level. Is there something, is there a vision of the future that you have that you're kind of hoping for as a society that we're leading towards? Yeah, uh, if, if I look at, you know, what this should look like in the next decade and beyond, I, I don't go back and perceive this sort of dystopian world where no one has an ability to do high functioning, meaningful work in their day jobs. They don't have enough time to be able to spend with their, their families, their friends. I see a, a world where there's more ability to do higher level capabilities um, in your work life, in your home life, without all the monotony and a lot of the 
the road tasks that have been historically limiting us. And it actually goes back to a little bit of an experience that I had when I was president of Alteryx. And I remember at a user conference, uh, one of our first user conferences, and we, we'd done a fair amount of work in the product to be able to rebuild a self-service analytics capability that didn't exist at that moment for doing analytical data prep, data blending. And one of the data analysts that was at the conference in those early days came up to, came up to me and, and he had this sort of look of, of just joy, but, but also uh, emotion. And, and he, was, he was about to cry. And, and, and he said, can I give you a hug? And I'm like, I don't know you yet. <laughs> Why are you wanting to give me a hug? And, and, and he says, well, I just wanted to let you know that I was able to get to my son's baseball game on Fridays, again, on time. And it's been over two years that I've been able to do that because I've always had to stay after the time that I've been allocated for work to get the data set right, mm. to be able to be ready for the next week. Mm -hmm. And now I can run a routine, it's automated that routine, I'm home at 5.30 and I can make my son's baseball game. Wow, great story. And that is what I think about as the profound nature of AI and automation for this next generation. Like what if we can all get to our kids' baseball games on time? What if we can all have a higher quality level of interaction with our friends and our families? Because the rote tasks, the things that have gotten in the way of us being more higher, higher productivity and what we're engaging upon is somehow more possible than before because humans and machines are working in a more symbiotic way. And that's what excites me about this future particularly when it comes to a generative AI first world. Great answer, really beautiful. Um, so I said I was done with my technical questions, now I just have two kind of administrative questions for you that I always ask my guests on air. Uh, so the penultimate one is, do you have a book recommendation for us? Sure. Um, it's, it's a book that has been in the market for a while, but it's something that we all need to revisit. and. It turns out the, the title of the book says everything, Age of Spiritual Machines. Mm. It's something that I would actually kind of recommend for anyone who's you know, thinking about this, this, this future that we're entering to come back and look at like, how do we understand what machines will look like when there's higher level reasoning that they can accomplish alongside of the reasoning that humans can deliver. So that would be one of my favorite nice. recommendations for book reading. That's a great one, George. And no doubt all of our listeners listening to this episode have been blown away by the wealth of insights that you have across the data and AI stack um, in terms of the history of where these technologies have been and where they're going. Uh, if after this episode they'd like to follow you, how best can they do that? Yeah, best way to follow me is of course on LinkedIn. Um, you can of course find me there pretty frequently. I'm also on Twitter um, as well as my firm Insight Partners is a very active participant in the space and you can follow us also on social media specifically 
on LinkedIn and Twitter. So we're very available for anyone who wants to have a conversation on where the future of all of data and AI will continue to evolve. And uh, we really appreciate this opportunity to have this discussion with you today, John. Whew. I mean, the honor is all mine, George. Thank you so much for uh, coming over, filming this episode. I know our audience absolutely loved it. Uh, and yeah, maybe uh, in a couple of years, we can check in again, see how this journey is coming along, and we can get an update on uh, the latest and greatest in investment and, and what the future is looking like from that uh, perspective. That's awesome. Looking forward to that in the very near future. Nice. Wow, that was an exceptionally interesting and educational conversation for me. I hope you found it super valuable too. In today's episode, George filled us in on the four layers of the emerging generative AI stack that consists of general foundation models at the bottom, specialized domain-specific models as the second layer, tools for developers as the third layer, and applications as the top layer. He talked about how RLHF improves outputs and can enable models based on your proprietary data to become a defensible moat for your company. He talked about how the critical elements of ML ops are data quality, data orchestration like Airflow, reverse ETL, and model interoperability. He talked about how LLM ops has emerged as a specialized subfield within ML ops to support LLMs, which are uniquely challenging to work with for training and inference because of their size. And he talked about how platform analytics can support an auspicious flywheel between product-led growth and enterprise sales. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for George's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 679. That's superdatascience.com slash 679. I encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by tagging me in public posts or comments on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like the Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another captivating episode for us today. For enabling this super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting the show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Finally, thanks, of course, to you for listening. It's because you listen that I'm here. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.